Thank you so much, Erica and Naomi. You guys do a great job. We really appreciate all the time you guys spend, and we are blessed for it. Thank you for leading us in worship. We do have a couple announcements. Uh, the first one, uh, Bob is not here. He's not here because him and Kathy are out of town, so they're enjoying some time away. So if you're wondering, um, he is nobody's sick, nothing like that. He is out of town. And if you need something, just reach out to one of the other elders. Um, or if you know somebody who needs something in the church or somebody reaches out to you wondering why they might call and not get an answer at his house, that will be why. So we also have another announcement. Uh, the Hooks family are actually going to be headed out um, and they are going to be leaving. So this is their last Sunday with us. And we have been blessed to get to know them, thankful for them. And we just want to um, pray for them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for them as they, as they go and be sure to say goodbye to them today. Father, we thank you so much for the hooks. And I just ask your blessing as they, as they go, that you would bless Cameron's new job over there serving um, in the police force there. God, give him great wisdom um, as, he, as he deals with all um, that he deals with as um, a officer. And I just pray that their whole family, um, that they would just be able to connect well to a local church there. They'd be able to connect well to existing family and friends and also new friends. Um, and that they would feel loved over there. We love them. And we just ask your blessing upon each one of them. May their, may their children grow up to love you and to trust you. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. I also wanted to pray this morning for a couple different things. As we know, um, in our community, COVID continues to be quite a problem. As you watch the news or read the whatever it is you read, um, Sometimes the news gets pretty discouraging. And we have a lot of friends, families who are affected by it, some in small ways, some in very big ways. And so we just want to continue just to, just to pray um, for those around us and for really this world as it relates to that. So, Father, we do just come before you uh, asking for, man, just a lot of wisdom I mean, how to continue deal with um, the effects of COVID, whether it's for us as a, as a church, um, wisdom for leaders, wisdom for scientists, um, wisdom for our families, and for those that are, that are sick in our community, thinking of various churches that have been really affected and people that have been hospitalized, and, um, of course, others in the community who have seen people die. I ask for comfort. Um, and we just ask that, yeah, that you would just uh, eradicate this. Think of all that's going on in this world, and at times it gets very overwhelming, and we do not know how to pray. Social media and the news and just constantly ingesting so much bad news, it seems. I'm thinking of the whole situation in Afghanistan and the people there. And again, we ask for wisdom upon our leaders and upon um, President Biden, the cabinet. We ask for wisdom in um, the military. And we have so many opinions, so much heartache about what is going on. And I just pray 
that wisdom would be enacted upon. Um, and thinking of the church in Afghanistan, um, I just pray that you would strengthen pastors and leaders in the church. May somehow, in your great mercy, may even this um, be used to further uh, your church and that people would come to know you and to love you and trust you. So God, we are sobered by that and we ask for your help there. We ask for your blessing upon us today as we come to your word. Would you teach us and would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, so we are in Matthew, the New Testament. It's been it's taking a little while, right, doing the Bible reading plan this year, um, but we find ourselves in Matthew. Uh, Pastor Bob did a sermon on Matthew last week, and today I'm going to be in Matthew 15, probably one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels. Such a such a wonderful story. I'm going to read some of the context before it. We're going to be reading about the faith of a Canaanite woman. And I thought it was important to set the context a little bit. So we're going to start at the beginning of Matthew chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. 
And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. God's word. So as we've been reading the Bible reading plan, the reason why we do something like that is because we need our hearts reordered by Scripture. We need the stories we tell about ourselves, about life, reordered by Scripture. Scripture is a narrative. It's a story. And we all come in here with a story, a narrative that shapes who we are. We all have a family of origin. We all have personality, circumstances. Nowadays, as we know, much political identities various cultural issues and identities framed by the culture. And these stories we tell ourselves must be redefined with the Scripture. And so here is a text of Scripture that is dripping with story and identity in the background. And we need to be careful that we don't just try to frame it into modern categories. There's actually a ton here that could be gleaned into some of our modern categories. But one thing about reading the Bible is we learn that we enter a new world. We enter a biblical world, something much different than our modern Western world. And so though it does speak to current issues, we need to be shaped by what this is telling us. And one thing we know when we do that is that this has a lot to say about the story of this woman and about the way in which Jew and Gentile was framed in the biblical story. We have the whole book of Matthew, which from the very beginning was set up as a book that shows that Jesus comes in a lineage. In Matthew 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right there, we see themes that they would have known at that time of son of David as an idea of a king. Son of Abraham, the idea of a patriarch, a seed that would come to bless the world. We find that God has chosen a people. We've seen that from the very beginning of Genesis. And even this word here, genealogy, can actually be translated book of Genesis. This is a new story. And we have the main figure appearing on the scene. Jesus, the son of David, the king that Israel has been waiting for. The son of Abraham, the seed of woman. The one who would bless Abraham's nation, but also all the nations of the world. In fact, when you read Matthew, there's a ton of unique Old Testament scriptures that are in it 
even more than other parts of the New Testament because there's this theme of fulfillment, that God is fulfilling all that he has said to his people. So as we've been reading the Old Testament, we're to set the stage in the way our minds are thinking about what happens in Matthew according to all that has gone before, that he is fulfilling all of his promises to Israel. And so there's this theme of the particular and the universal. And what I mean by that is God has chosen a specific people. He has elected a specific people by which all the nations would be blessed. So there's this sense of primary identity with Israel. Jesus comes as a Jew, as an Israelite, so to speak, and he will come and bless the nations. And that tension runs all through the scriptures. And even in this context, context, as we come to verses 21 to 28, what goes right before it? You have this discussion of clean and unclean, this discussion of what is filthy and what is not in the context of all that we've seen. We've read about it in Leviticus. We've read about it as we've gone through the Bible this year. And here you see that Jesus goes to the Jewish leaders and Jesus goes to his people and he says, wait a second, this isn't quite what you think it is. It's not just being filthy on the outside, but it's actually filth on the inside. It it matters what goes on in the heart of a person. So he's kind of busting some of these categories of what is clean and what is unclean. And so in verse 21, when it says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, there were a few things that are happening. Jesus is moving away from Israel's territory. He's going into Gentile territory, which is actually pagan territory. Again, you've got to have the Old Testament tying this story in your head. He's moving away from Israel's leaders. So there's almost like there's symbolism happening here. This literally happened historically, but also there's a sense in which he is withdrawing and moving away because the leaders of Israel, the ones who are supposed to be the shepherds, are not shepherding Israel well. They do not get it. They are offended by what Jesus is saying. And so he goes away from there and he withdraws to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is actually the area of modern day Lebanon and Syria. But we wouldn't, right now we may think of it in those terms, but that's not the baggage that's going to come with these places to the hearers there. They're going to be thinking Tyre and Sidon is pagan territory. That's where Jezebel was born. But, on a more positive note, it's also where there was a widow in 1 Kings 17. There was a widow of Sidon that Elijah met. So even in the Old Testament, you had the messenger of God go into Gentile pagan territory and there's a woman there she asked for the healing and raising of her child. And she sees the child made whole. Elijah actually lays on the dead child three times. And in the story we're about to see, the woman confronts Jesus three times. So there's a few things going on here. When you see Tyre and Sidon, you're going to see both, ooh, this is bad. This is Jezebel. This is pagan territory. These are the people over there that are the enemies of God. And so he sets the stage with that. And then in the next verse, 
it says, and behold, behold, look. This is the same word that's used in the first chapter of Matthew. When the angel shows up. So the sense of like, this is amazing. What's going to happen, behold, you are to look at it. Matthew loves this word. He's trying to get his people all the time to to behold. Hey, something great's going to happen. Look at what it's going to be. Matthew uses that 62 times, which is a lot more times than, I don't know if it's everyone in the New Testament, but it's out of 200 times, Matthew uses it 62. So he just loves getting your attention. Look, behold, this story is telling something major, telling something amazing. Behold a Canaanite woman. Canaanite is intentional. In Mark, the story happens in Mark. That word isn't used. Matthew's intentionally trying to elicit this response. Immediately go, Canaanite, we've been reading the Old Testament. What are Canaanites? They're the enemies of Israel. When you go all the way back to Genesis and all the way through the Old Testament, you get the sense that they are the enemies. They're the ones in the promised land. They're the ones that are to be, to be driven out. They're the ones who, who practice all kinds of sexual immorality, who sacrifice their children to false gods. So you have the sense of false gods, demonic activity. Ham, the child of Noah, the curse that falls on Ham, Noah, or God says, Cursed be Canaan, the father of Canaan is Ham. So you have this whole lineage of Canaanites that is not good. The enemies, in a sense, of the people of God. In Leviticus 18, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. And then he goes on to list all the different things that they do. As you read Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 7, which sets up Joshua, you're going to drive them out. You're going to drive out the Canaanites. So, when you, when you see that word, we're supposed to go, this is off limits. And yet, look, something amazing is about to happen. A Canaanite woman from that region, from the region of the Gentiles, this region of paganism, came out and was crying. So I think when we first see crying, we think maybe just actually literally crying. But this is actually an intense shout, even a scream. It's an unpleasant sound. So there is agony in her voice. This is unsettling. She is in utter desperation. This is a visceral cry, a parental motherly cry for a child that cannot be helped. And I couldn't help but picture that picture that we saw or some of us saw of the woman handing the baby over the wall in Afghanistan to American troops. A sense of utter and total desperation and need for outside help. The impossibility of life under a certain regime of handing over your very child. And so you need to think in terms of this is an unbelievable powerful scene. This woman is utterly helpless. Screaming out for help to Jesus. And she desires His mercy. She desires His mercy. She came out and was crying, have mercy on me. Why? Why mercy? 
we find out my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, tormented by a child, excuse me, tormented by a demon. Her little girl is possessed by something that she cannot solve, she cannot fix. So this is a kind of supernatural desperation that can't be handled in the physical world. There's a sense of impossibility about it. She needs an external power to defeat it. Again, I can't help but picture the situation in Afghanistan. This daughter is under an oppressive supernatural power, even worse than maybe something like the Taliban, and she desperately needs deliverance. And so this woman comes to Jesus because she knows somehow Jesus is the only one who can bring this deliverance. I am at the end of myself. My daughter is possessed by a demon and I need you. And so she somehow knows, she must have heard stories, she knows this true identity of who Jesus is. She knows that he's more than just another Israelite leader and she actually knows more than the leaders of Israel know. She actually confesses and says, O Lord, Son of David. She knows that usually a king comes to defeat enemies. She knows about David. She would have known that that David and the, the whole lineage of kings, there's this sense of driving out pagan Gentiles. But here she's coming to Jesus knowing, wait a second, he is the Messiah. He can bring me help. And so you have a non Israelite pagan woman knowing this. Not the Jewish leaders. So she confesses that he is the Messiah in utter desperation. And I just can't help but think, when is the last time you were utterly desperate for God to do something? Maybe for some of you it would be, you feel that way all the time. (laughs) Maybe for some, you've kind of been coasting along and it's all going pretty good. But when is the last time that there, or is there something in your life where you feel like it is an impossibility? You cannot do it on your own. Because there's no numbness in this story. There's utter emotion. There's utter passion. There's no prayerlessness. There's no withdrawal from this woman. She is in utter public vulnerability, raw, desperately crying, for Jesus to help her. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. He did not answer her a word. And so her desperation is met with silence. Her desperation is met with the silence of Jesus. And I have been struck by that sentence because it's unsettling. Here this woman is coming before Jesus and he says nothing. Do you ever feel like God does not hear you? Do you ever feel like God maybe doesn't care that much about you? That when you actually need an answer that there is silence? She must have felt that in that moment. As we've read the Old Testament, the psalmist felt that continuously. They're crying out, Where are you, Lord? 
Why is this happening? What's going on? All through the Scriptures, there's the sense of prayer, of longing and wrestling with God. So, you have silence. I think some of us are going to go, well, yeah, but it's quickly solved. Okay, true. But still, I think we're, God has that sentence there to, I think, remind us at times it can feel and be silence. But it doesn't stop her. The silence of Jesus does not stop this woman. So I think, again, we should ask our question, what we should ask ourselves, what are we finished believing God for? Where have maybe you feel like you've been met with silence from Jesus, from the Father? Where have you maybe chalked something up to the sovereign plan of God that you've just kind of given up on? This story tells us not to give up. I think it kind of is like a slap in the face to a distorted view of God's sovereignty. And it's meant to kind of wake us up. To go, God wants active, pursuant, persistent faith. This woman keeps pressing in. She does not take no. She does not take the silence of Jesus for an answer. And we see that as we go. But first, we have a little window in here to the good old disciples. In verse 23. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Send her away. When I first read this, I thought the send her away was like, don't heal her, don't do anything, just get her out of here. But that's probably not the sense of of that. The Jerusalem Bible actually translated this, give her what she wants. So you kind of think of this like parents or like me sometimes. You're busy with something important. You're having an important conversation and the child comes up to you and they want something. And so you're just like, quickly, give it. Give me his candy. Run off. Good to go. So it's like, it's like I have something better to deal with right now. There's something more important, kind of a depersonalization, kind of a subhuman. It's not as important as the adult I'm talking to. Um, Just here, take your piece of candy and go. Go play. Go do something. So I think that's the attitude here. It's, it's kind of this depersonalization, this, this you are not important. Sure, Jesus, give her what she wants and get her out of here. And that does not dissuade her. But I think this is also a great reminder that if her focus would have not been, would have been the disciples she might have just said, well, forget it. I'm out of here. Who's this Jesus? I'm done. This is the way the disciples treat me. This is the way that his followers treat me. If her eyes would have been on the followers, she might have been like, well, I don't know about these guys. I'm going back to paganism. or I'm going back to whatever else I'm doing. And so this is a great reminder to keep your eyes on who Jesus is and not who his disciples or followers are. Right now, if you follow anything online, there's a lot of phrases like deconversion of stories of people leaving the church for various reasons. Um, back, in, back when I was a kid, they called it backsliding. Now they use fancy philosophical terms like deconversion. But 
I think this shows us something, that when your eyes are just on the disciples or just on the failures of this and that, this woman can teach us and say, hey, wait a second, hold on. Yeah, those disciples can make a lot of mistakes. We, I, us, the American church, can make some significant mistakes. But our eyes should be on Jesus. And her eyes are still on Jesus. The most compelling thing about Christianity is always going to be Christ. It's always going to be Jesus. And another reason why we know the disciples probably wanted Jesus to go ahead and heal her, but to do it quickly, is because of the way that he answers. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's almost like, well, wait a second, no, I'm not going to go heal her real quick. I'm just, hey, I'm on a mission, and, I'm in a, and I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Bob actually mentioned kind of these, this phrase and this sense in Matthew, where sometimes you get this idea of there's this primary mission to the Jews. We see that in other parts of, of the up in the New Testament, it's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. In Matthew 10, 5, and 6, Bob, Bob mentioned this last week, when Jesus goes and commissions his disciples, he says to go to the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that probably isn't saying lost sheep is in, there's just some people in Israel that are lost, but probably the sense like the New Living Translation translates it, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. All of them, they're lost. Their leaders are lost. They're lost. And so that's Jesus' response. Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And I couldn't help but notice up in 15.12, you have the Pharisees offended by what Jesus says. The Pharisees are done. They're offended. In 15.12, the disciples basically say, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? So the Pharisees are offended at what Jesus says. This woman is not offended. She has kind of a tough skin, thick skin. She keeps chasing after him. So while the religious leaders of Israel are offended this woman, this pagan Canaanite woman, comes and worships Jesus. There's this posture of worship. She kneels before him and she says, Lord, help me. And that word help is probably one of my favorite prayers. You ever have situations where you feel like you have no words, but all you can say is help. Help, I'm helpless. A cry of help. So again, she doesn't stop at Jesus' words. She doesn't walk away with a whimper. She doesn't put her tail between her legs and just kind of leave. She is more like a pit bull and keeps going. Keeps going after Jesus. And of course, not so much with maybe the well, with the aggressiveness of a pit bull, but at the same time with this childlike humility of continuing to go to mom and dad. Continuing to go in a posture of worship, of no, I'm going to keep going after you. I know you're where my help is found. She asks again. Verse 26. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So here again, 
If she wasn't offended before, it seems like she would be offended now. And this again emphasizes Jesus' primary mission, first to his own people, Israel. And he's using a term here, yes, he's using it indirectly, but he's using a term here about this woman that would have been offensive. Dogs. But scholars have noted that there are a few different ways you could say this word. Paul uses this word almost like a four-letter word. In fact, if you pull up Logos, you can see the B word in Philippians 3.20. Jesus uses a different word. There's kind of like a quick way to say dogs. You know how we like our quick four-letter words. (laughs) Then there's a longer way. And in this longer way, it's more like little dog, house dog, a pet, not so much a wild roving scavenger, or again, the B word. So you should be thinking little dog. There's a different way. It's, <laughs> it's still offensive. Because we think of pets nowadays as pampered pets. We buy pet insurance for our pets. Pets are cute, all that kind of stuff. This is still a sense of helplessness. This is still a sense of, yes, You're not the scavenger dog outside in the street, but you're still kind of a a dog in the house under the table. And so you have this distinction again between Jew and Gentile. So she's an outsider. But what does she do? Verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Yes, yes, Lord, you're right. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She still sees who Jesus is. She still sees that the mercy of Christ is so gigantic that it spills over the table, that it overflows even to the least. She sees in him a kind of grace that doesn't have limits. Way bigger than the narrowness of what religious leaders and the Pharisees see. She's like, hey, that's fine. I'm a Jew, I'm, or excuse me, I'm a, I'm a Gentile, I'm a pagan, but I know that your grace is so big, it even flows over the table. I may be a dog in the house, but I am getting the overflow of the food. Martin Luther has a wonderful sermon on this. And this is what he, uh, oh, there we go. And this is what he said. What a superb and wonderful object lesson this is. Therefore, to teach us what a mighty, powerful, all-availing thing faith is. Faith takes Christ captive in His Word. When He's angriest and makes out of His cruel words a comforting inversion, as we see here, you say, the woman responds, that I'm a dog. Let it be. I'll gladly be a dog. Now give me the consideration that you give a dog. Thus she catches Christ with his own words and he is happy to be caught. Very well, she says, if I'm a dog, I ask no more than a dog's rights. I am not a child, nor am I of Abraham's seed, but you are a rich Lord and set a lavish table. Give your children the bread and place it at the table. I do not wish that. Let me merely like a dog pick up the crumbs under the table, allowing me that which the children don't need or even miss, the crumbs, and I'll be content therewith. So she catches Christ the Lord in his own words and with that wins not only the right of a dog, 
but also that of the children. Now then, where will he go, our dear Jesus? He let himself be made captive and must comply. Be sure of this. That's what he most deeply desires. Jesus says, Jesus answered her, verse 28, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. O woman. And so that is a polite, one scholar said, full of emotional force term. If I said that in a conversation, it would not go over well. You don't just say, O woman. This is a completely different way of saying it. This is an endearing. Again, this is the sense of what the disciples do is get her away. Jesus sees her. Sees this woman before him. Personalizes her. Says, O woman, great is your faith. In all Israel, you can't find faith like that. That's what he said to the centurion, Roman occupier earlier in Matthew. I haven't found faith in all of Israel, but great is your faith, Roman centurion, occupier, enemy, of Israel. You see these hints. In Matthew, you have the Magi coming to Jesus from the east. And here he identifies her as having great faith. Earlier in Matthew, when Peter falls in the waves, he says, Oh Lord, save me. Jesus says, You have little faith. <laughs> Peter, your faith is small. This woman right here, disciples, here is where I find great faith. Look, this is amazing. She sees her. Her great faith is contrasted with even the disciples. Her daughter is healed instantly. Her daughter is made whole. The torment, the demonic torment that her daughter faces is relieved. Great faith sees a great Christ. As I read the story, it kind of feels like the woman is the center of the story. There's no doubt that this story brings all kinds of interesting thoughts to mind. And like, wow, what's going on here, Jesus? But what's also going on is that you see she is so directed and focused on Jesus Christ, she will not let go of him. And that's what faith is. It isn't so much, again, just the, the working up of the greatness inside of faith. It's seeing that you have a great Christ. I am a Canaanite woman. I have no rights. I have no privileges. I am not only a woman, I am um, one of the enemies. And yet, Jesus, you have every single thing that I need. You are my only hope. And his grace overflows to her. Continuously, she says, Lord, over and over again in this passage, continuing to go back to Jesus over and over again because that is her only hope. Great faith sees a great and lavish Christ. And of course, all of us here, or actually, I don't know that for sure, but if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. <laughs> if you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile. And we are recipients and beneficiaries of the wonderful work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us and all that he has accomplished and the good news is, as, as Paul continues um, to show us later, is that we are brought into the family of faith by faith in Christ and we are made Abraham's children. We are made Jews inwardly. We are brought into the people 
of God. So we need to be like this woman, but even different than this woman. And that I think sometimes we forget the status of who we actually are. So we, as believers, come to Jesus as children. But sometimes I think we still don't see ourselves as children. We think of ourselves as his enemy. So that's a way in which we are not like this woman. Now, of course, this woman, by faith, is now gets the rights of the children. But we, too, by faith, now have the rights of the children. So I think sometimes, as believers, we live below the privileges we have. We can pray like that. We can wrestle with God like that. We can call out to God about desperate issues in our lives like that. Because we are his children. He loves us. Don't think of yourself as an enemy. By grace in Jesus Christ, think of yourself as a child because of what he has won for you. Because of what he shows us in communion. He breaks his body. He sheds his blood. We get the whole Christ. We consume Christ. We get all of him and all that he is and all the great grace that he gives. And so we are reminded, even as we take communion, that we have access by faith into all of Jesus. He is for us. So let's take communion with that in mind.
So we have the master's table full of grace. Full of grace for the worst of the worst. And Jesus gives himself to us. Matthew 26, 26 to 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. Go in faith. us as we close. Praise God for His grace that never ends. There's a treasure great immunity far surpassing earth's great wealth. He is Jesus Prince of glory Source of all grace, peace, and health. There's a fountain ever flowing, satisfying all who drink. He is Jesus, spring of joy to all who hail him as their king. There's a power, holy power, breaking bonds of captive men. He is Jesus, mighty Jesus, holy warrior and sinner's friend. There's a Savior, rich in mercy, where to pardon all our sins. He is Jesus, great Redeemer, reconciling God and man. There's a glorious Lord returning, God will bow to him alone. He is Jesus, King of nations, reigning from his gracious throne. There is one to whom all praises, well through every age ascend. He is Jesus, King forever, his wondrous rule will never end. You guys have a wonderful week. Thank you.